touch, and the use of the second we have endeavored to restrict. We do not, with the ancient rhetoricians, give free course to all the passions but in connection with the generous motives of which we have authorized the use. We indicate certain moral elements which enter into one or the other of the two grand motives above mentioned, or perhaps into both at the same time. We name them apart, because, each of them has something special, sui generis, and because it is not easy to say, at least with respect to some of them, to which of these principles they relate, self-love. We cannot determine ourselves to truth or duty, by self-love or vanity, but it is impossible not to see that truth is conformed and that error is contrary to the dignity of human nature. Here, in opposition to what we have said above as to the preference to be given to the positive over the negative, it is the negative that we prefer. We prefer exciting ourselves to goodness by the disgrace of being destitute of it rather than by the honor of practicing it. When a preacher, and the most of Christians may do this, shows how disgraceful is such an action, such conduct, such an opinion, what else does he but rely on the necessity of our esteeming or at least of our not despising ourselves? It is true that the apostles scarcely appeal to the sentiment of human or personal dignity even under this form. It is not so much ourselves that they are just to respect as God in us. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, says Saint Paul, 1 Corinthians, v 19, ridicule. The difficulty is not to excite but to avoid exciting it, for wherever we find the unreasonable, their invariably ridicule may have place. In truth, says Pascal, it is honorable to religion to have such unreasonable men for its enemies. If we must admit, says Boilo, that God has insensate enemies, but we must not excite ridicule, for it is an impression which shuts the soul to religious emotions. We must beware of erecting the fear of ridicule into a motive, for men, under the power of it, will no longer avoid evil as evil, but as ridicule, they will no more repent of sin although sin is still a stupidity, we must guard against it, for ridicule attaches itself almost as easily to good as to evil, it is respect for man, nothing else, that ridicule invokes, moreover, though ridicule may make us avoid an action, it does not amend the soul, this shows that the pretense of correcting morals, castigamores, by comedy is vain, if the use of ridicule may be admitted in familiar conversation or in a book, it is out of place in an assembly, when grave subjects are treated, assembled men are susceptible of very diverse impressions, which are not felt in the same degree by a single man, we must beware of proceeding too far, when we use the reductio ad absurdum, sense of the beautiful, what is the beautiful in such matters as preaching has to do with one is it different from the good, can we at least distinguish it from the good one the good is its ground, and under certain conditions the good becomes the beautiful, analysis may discover these conditions, which are harmony, unity, grandeur, by making these characters prominent, we may give to the good the form of the beautiful, the preacher may do this, we see not why we should deprive truth and goodness of any one of their advantages, but he must not present the beautiful as a motive, to itself alone, and in itself. The manifest relation of the good to the beautiful has led to great errors, to the idea of the aesthetic culture of the soul, the idea that the development of taste is the best preparation for virtue, so far from this is the truth, that a literary education badly directed, will result in perverting the soul, in misdirecting it, and giving it a factitious nurture, literary talent is a great snare, in man the sinner, it easily becomes the unrighteous mammon the preacher is not to regard the subjects which he has to treat. From an essentially aesthetic point of view, there cannot but be danger in doing so. Sympathetic affections, 
the sympathetic affections, which, apart from the reflex idea of duty and the intention of obedience, unite our existence to that of others, of individuals or the community, and, for a moment, dispossess us of ourselves, coincide with the spirit and design of the gospel, and bear testimony to it, God, who put these affections within us, cannot condemn them, they are a law of our nature, we may avail ourselves of them, appeal to them, excite the domestic affections, patriotism, friendship, admiration, gratitude, still, however, giving to them a subordinate position and importance, whatever of good remains in us since our fall, we must gather up in order to present it in homage to God, let us cast all into the treasury of God, let everything lose itself in the ocean of his love, by exercising love to creatures, we exercise love to him, of emotion, admitting the use of all these motives or means of impression, another question presents itself, is it proper to excite emotion, and I ask whether it is possible not to do this, especially supposing that we have been able to make use of all the appliances of which we have been speaking, is the distinction which some would make between moving and exciting emotion, between movement and emotion, a real distinction, what is an affection but a prolonged emotion, an emotion diffused through the whole life. What is an emotion but an affection excited for the instant, though we may in a given case, resolve on an action without exciting a present sensible emotion, we can only get the control of our life by exciting an affection, which is to emotion what the whole is to its parts, a tree to its branches, any fact whatever to its various incidents, it is impossible that our affection should not have its distinct exercises, which are emotions, affection, without being dormant or languishing, reposes, until something external, a fact or a word, touches and excites it, but this fact, this word, in some sort, rouses it, a particular movement has place in the general movement, this particular movement is emotion, there is, likewise, a distinction to be made between emotions, some, by their very nature, or by the nature of the affected part, are more vivid, others less so, but I say of both kinds, that the distinct moment in which we make an appeal to them, is a moment when an emotion takes place, it will be said, show this affection the objects which correspond to it, but do nothing more, give fuel to this flame, but do not blow upon it, these distinctions, which seem real at the first glance, vanish at the second, what then is it that produces emotion, but the act of approximating to the affection the objects which correspond to it, and when you say, it is one thing to feed the flame, it is anith a thing to blow upon it, you deceive yourself with the image which you use, or rather, it does not deceive you, this human breath is also fuel for the flame, this breath is something, there is more than a simple disturbance or displacement of the air, breath, in eloquence, is its facts, its reasons, you cannot, without something of the kind, render more vivid for the instant the sense of the present affection, just as you cannot present to an affection the facts or ideas which correspond to it, without exciting more or less of emotion, on certain subjects, if we do not move the feelings we are not complete, if we have not done this, we have not said everything, we may appear to be complete, in one sense we may have been so, reason may have been convinced and conscience enlightened, but if we have reached only the speculative powers, if we have not, as far as possible, brought the emotional parts of the soul into contact with their appropriate objects, if, in a word, we have not moved the feelings, we have stopped in mid-course. Will the hearers do the rest of themselves one shall we adopt the false idea that the generality of the hearers will address discourse to themselves which we were unwilling to address to them, will our appearing not to be moved, be a means of moving them, 
for after all what we are not willing to do, it is necessary they should do, they must penetrate their own heart with arrows which we throw at a good mark, but not with sufficient force, if we are not permitted to move the feelings, what shall we say of the example which the writers of the Bible have set us the most pathetic of all writers, who did not think that Jesus Christ was fully preached, unless he was so vividly set forth, that he seemed to be a second time crucified before their eyes, Galatians. 3, 1, is not the gospel in itself, independently of the language of its writers, adapted to move feeling, by presenting facts, realities to us, instead of abstract ideas, and by pressing them on our heart, we may then, we should address the feelings, but not without rule or measure, our rhetoric differs from that of the ancients it is a remarkable thing the distinction which the Athenians made in this matter, between the bar and the senate, they permitted no appeals to feeling in addresses to the judges of the Areopagus, in other words, no motive was ever to be presented to them, except the motive, equable always, of justice and of truth. I know not whether the Athenians did not forget that the mind also has its illusions, and that the heart is a dupe of the mind, as well as the mind of the heart, but be this as it may, the Athenians, out of the Areopagus, abundantly indemnified themselves for this restriction, which they would not have imposed on themselves in judicial affairs, if they had not felt how contrary it was to their nature generally, passion overflowed in political eloquence, where, since law, as Bossuet says, was no longer acknowledged by the people as reason, but where the will of the people was itself law and reason, the eloquence which, by any means whatsoever, swayed the general will, was always right. Notwithstanding this, the Greeks did not refrain from maintaining theoretically, that eloquence ought to be devoted to the service of truth, and indeed, that eloquence and truth were essentially united, though in practice they showed little scruple as to the choice of means, the immense, in practice, were the same, and their theory accorded with their practice, their rhetoricians plainly authorized everything which was suited to deceive the mind, and to prevail over it, Pafazet Nephus. Their rhetoric does not imperfectly resemble the politics of the prince we who do not think it necessary or possible to interdict emotion, give different rules, we are not envious of a triumph obtained by surprise or by violence, we maintain that emotion should either replace nor precede proof, the road doubtless would be shorter, for with the people an image is more forcible than an idea, for deciding great questions, passion is more suitable than reasoning. We must neither multiply nor prolong sudden onsets, especially if they are powerful in the next place. While we are in favor of emotion and even of agitation, we are opposed to perturbation. It is necessary that thought should react, that its action be not suspended. We must reserve space for contemplation. Emotion should not interfere with clearness and precision of ideas. Emotion otherwise would not be legitimate, or would pay no regard to our liberty. It would be passion. Nothing in the soul is lasting, which is not an idea for its internal support. Nothing of a nature purely passive is lasting an idea nourishes, renews emotion, which, left to itself just dissipated. This consideration has weight, especially in the eloquence of the pulpit, which is not in haste as to the settlement of accounts. We are mistaken also, if we think that affection will respond to an appeal in proportion to its greater vividness and force. God is not always in the whirlwind. 1 Kings, 19, 2, 12. The more you cry the less will you be heard. It is of more avail in regard to the effects we desire to produce, to have the appearance of feeling more than we express, than that of expressing more than we feel, and the hearer partakes the more of our emotion, the more he perceives that we are suppressing it there is in reserve, moreover, something manly and dignified, the eloquence of the apostles and prophets, though entirely free, is not a violent and convulsive eloquence, 
We add that nothing approaches nearer to the ridiculous than an attempt to be affecting, which is, at the same time, violent and unsuccessful, it may be said, but we have nothing to do with irritating minds but we have to do now not with cutting, sec air, the knot, but untying it, to reason otherwise is to imitate that bad modern art of poetry, condemned by Aristotle 2000 years ago, which would strike hard rather than justly, and confound the understanding rather than touch the soul and which boasts of this rudeness and exclaims that the art is in good condition, it will be said, perhaps, that zeal cannot observe these rules, that those whom the voice of the preacher converts, are brands plucked from the fire, that his word is a cry of alarm, and that it is as unreasonable to wish to drown the voice, as it would be to prescribe a certain accent and volume for a man's voice, who, in view of a house in flames, should raise the cry of fire, very well. But that religion which God made as he pleased, is a religion of thought and a religion of persuasion, it cannot renounce these characteristics without changing its nature, for they are essential to it, one is not a Christian if his religion be not the subject of his thought and of his consent, now both are incompatible with this violent and boisterous eloquence, preachers of the highest order J.R. cited, whose words overpowered thousands of hearers crowded about them under the vault of heaven, and filled a vast plain with their groans and sighs. I reply, that truth in certain times and with certain persons, has in itself overwhelming force, I reply, that it is not certain that the most numerous and trustworthy conquests of these preachers were among those who were so overwhelmed, I reply finally, that the preacher need not concern himself with symptoms, provided he is conscious to himself of having preached not to the nerves of his hearers, exercising a physical violence upon them, but to their reason, their conscience, and their heart. Moreover, rules are not absolute, we condemn nothing until we have examined it, and we do not undertake to pronounce symptoms on exercises of emotion, we only say, let not the exercise of thought be interrupted, and let there be no violation of internal liberty, as examples of what may be effected apart from the exercise of reason, by an image, a recollection, a gesture, any word or thing which abruptly and suddenly agitates the imagination or the senses, we cite Mark Antony uncovering, counting the wounds of Caesar, and the English soldier who was mutilated by the Spaniards, and whose words Mirabeau introduces in this manner, it is always under the illusion of the passions that political assemblies have decreed war, you are all acquainted with the remark of the sailor which was the occasion of the declaration of the war of England with Spain in 1740, when the Spaniards after mutilating me offered me death I commended my soul to God and the revenge of my wrong to my country. This sailor was truly an eloquent man, but the war which he kindled was neither just nor politic, neither the king of England nor his ministers desired it. Mirabeau, himself, employed a stroke of this kind in a speech on a proposition to decree that the Catholic religion should never be the religion of the state. I would observe to him who has spoken before me, that no one doubts that under a reign signalized by the revocation of the Edict of Nantes, all kinds of intolerance were consecrated. I will say further, that the remembrance of what despots have done should not be a pattern as to what ought to be done by the representatives of a people who desire to be free, but as historical references are proper on the subjects which engages us, let me make one only, remember, says, that from this place, this very tribune in which I am speaking, I see the window of the palace, in which factious men combining temporal interests with the most sacred interests of religion, obtained from the hand of the king of the French, feeble man the fatal arquebus which gave the signal of the massacre of St. Bartholomew, we will also recall the example of Gerbeer, presenting to the audience the orphans for whom he was pleading, without condemning any of the great effects of eloquence, which would be absurd and barbarous, we think we may generally prefer to abrupt effects, an effect which abides, which is more deep than violent, 
an eloquence little indebted to accidental causes, but penetrating, we add another rule, we must give preference to the exercise of the most elevated affections, we may draw tears with a blow of the fist, there are generous tears, and there are tears too ready to flow, it is doubtless superfluous to say that we must not speak of our own emotions. I have spoken of the sentiments which a preacher should endeavor to excite in his auditory, the same are the sentiments with which he himself should be exercised, we have yet, however, to speak of the general and characteristic spirit of Christian preaching, it is comprehended in unction and authority 3, of unction this word, taken in its etymology, and in its primitive ac, siptation, denotes no special quality of preaching, but rather the grace and the efficacy which are connected with it by the Spirit of God, a kind of seal and sanction which consists less in outward signs than in an impression received by the soul, but as, in ascending to the cause of this effect, we distinguish particularly certain characters, it is to the reunion of these characters that we have given the name of unction, unction seems to me to be the total character of the gospel, to be recognized, doubtless, in each of its parts, but especially apprehensible in their assemblage, it is the general savor of Christianity, it is a gravity accompanied by tenderness, a severity tempered with sweetness, a majesty associated with intimacy, the true contemperature of the Christian dispensation, in which, according to the psalmist's expression, mercy and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other, peace 10, it is so proper a thing to Christianity and to Christian matters, that we scarcely can think of transferring the term to other spheres, and when we meet with it applied to other things than Christian discourse, or Christian actions, we are astonished, and can only regard it as an analogy or a metaphor, from the fact that the whole modern world has been wholly imbued with Christianity, many modern works, which are neither Christian nor even religious, cannot be otherwise marked than by the word unction, while there is no work of antiquity that awakens this idea the remarks on unction, promised in the preceding paragraph, are not found in M. Vinatus manuscripts relating to homiletics, to fill up this chasm, we reproduce here the chapter on unction in the pastoral theology, pages 21-215, of our translation, we think ourselves the more authorized to do this, as a very short summary of some of the ideas in this chapter in one of the author's notebooks, seems to indicate, that as he was called to occupy himself with the same subject twice, he used the same notes in both courses the idea that Mori gives of unction is no other than that of Christian pathos. The definition of Blair is more distinctly identical with ours. Gravity and warmth united, according to this author, form that character of preaching which the trench call unction, the affecting, the penetrating, interesting manner, flowing from a strong sensibility of heart in the preacher to the importance of those truths which he delivers, and an earnest desire that they may make a full eye impression on the hearts of his hearers. F.M. Dutois Membrini thinks that, in order to define unction, an intimate and mysterious quality, we must guard against formal definition and analysis. It is by the effects of unction and by analogies that he would explain it, or, to speak better, give us a taste of it. Unction is a mild warmth which causes itself to be felt in the powers of the soul. It produces in the spiritual sphere the same effects as the sun in the physical. It enlightens and it warms. It puts light in the soul. It puts warmth in the heart. It causes us to know and to love. It fills us with emotion. I willingly admit that it is a light which warms and a warmth which enlightens. And I would recall on this subject the words of Saint John. The anointing which you have received from him abideth in you. And this anointing teaches you all things. I John. 2, 27, 
Mdutois Membrini continues thus, its only source is a regenerate and gracious spirit, it is a gift which exhausts itself and is lost if we do not renew this sacred fire, which we must always keep burning, that which feeds it is the internal cross, self-denial, prayer and penitence, unction, in religious subjects, is what in the poets is called enthusiasm, thus unction is the heart and the power of the soul, nourished, kindled, by the sweet influence of grace, it is a soft, delicious, lively, inward, profound, mellifluous feeling, unction, then, is that mild, soft, nourishing, and, at the same time, luminous heat, which illumines the spirit, penetrates the heart, moves it, transports it, and which he who has received it conveys to the souls in the hearts which are prepared to receive it also, unction is felt, is experienced, it cannot be analyzed, it makes its impression silently, and without the aid of reflection, it is conveyed in simplicity, and received in the same way by the heart into which the warmth of the preacher passes, ordinarily, it produces its effect, while as yet the taste of it is not developed in us, without our being able to give a reason to ourselves of what has made the impression, we feel, we experience, we are touched, we can hardly say why, we may apply to him who has received it these words of the prophet Isaiah, behold, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth, Isaiah, 41, 15, this man makes furrows in hearts, from all that has been said, we must not conclude that unction, which has much the same principle as piety, is exactly proportioned to piety, unction may be very unequal in two preachers, equal in piety, but it is too closely related to Christianity to be absolutely wanting to truly Christian preaching, certain obstacles, some natural, others of error or of habit, may do injury to unction, and obstruct, so to speak, the passage of the soft and holy oil, which should always flow, to lubricate all the articulations of thought, to render all the movements of discourse easy and just, to penetrate, to nourish speech, there is no artificial method of obtaining unction, the oil flows of itself from the olive, the most forcible pressure will not produce a drop from the earth, or from a flint, but there are means, if I may say so, by which we may keep, without unction, even a good basis of piety, or, of dissembling the unction which is in us, and of restraining it from flowing without, there are things incompatible with unction, such are wit, analysis too strict, a tone too dictatorial, logic too formal, irony, the use of too secular or too abstract language, a form too literary, finally, a style too compact and too close, for unction supposes abundance, overflow, fluidity, pliableness, it is the absence, rather than the presence of unction, that gives us its idea, it is from its opposite that we obtain its distinct notion, not, however, that it is but a negative quality, on the contrary, it is the most positive, but positive in the sense of an odor, of a color, of a savor, but let us not contract the idea of unction by reducing it to an effeminate mildness, a wordy abundance, a weeping pathos, we must not think that we cannot have unction except on the condition of interdicting strictness and consecutiveness in argument, and that boldness of accent, that holy vehemence which certain subjects demand, and without which, in treating them, we should be in fault, Massillon has unction, as Maury thinks, in a piece which contains nothing but reproaches F as an example, we cite Bossuet also, in the conclusion of a sermon on final impenitence for, of authority, authority is, in general, the right to be believed or obeyed, the right to require confidence or obedience, 
but the word authority denotes also the consciousness and exercise of this right, and in this sense, we may make authority one of the conditions of preaching, and one of the qualities of a preacher, it is not easy to say how it reveals itself, it is felt however, its absence is felt yet more, but it cannot be decomposed into separate and comprehensive elements, we can scarcely define and commend the sentiment itself, which authority may give to our language and our accent, but if the sentiment exists, the discourse will not fail to be marked with authority, and to put into relief, so to speak, its minutest details. We cannot say that authority is exclusively appropriate to pulpit discourse. We look for it. It gives us pleasure to perceive it in all public discourse. The orator's confidence in his own word inspires the auditory with confidence. We like to see a man sensible of what the force of his conviction and the seriousness of his objects demands from others. Truth has rights which pass to its representative, its organ. The most modest man should be able to sacrifice his modesty to the dignity of truth, and firmness becomes him when he is speaking in its behalf. But authority is especially essential in a Christian preacher, who speaks on the part of God himself, and who announces the oracles of God. We should offend sincere souls by not putting this seal on our discourse. We should even surprise those who do not believe our gospel. They are not at our point of view, but they well know what it ought to be. If they allow us to be in earnest, they allow us at the same time to speak with authority, and by addressing them in any other tone than that of authority, we succeed only in scandalizing and estranging them the more. We speak of true authority, that which rests entirely on conviction and zeal, and through which humility and charity shine, as through a pure and transparent medium. Everyone readily distinguishes it from that magisterial stateliness, that studied importance, to which ministers who have the spirit of their order rather than the spirit of the gospel, are necessarily exposed, from their holding an officially protected position, and from their being accustomed to speak without contradiction or interruption. If the Prince de Vendome had heard only ministers of this class, one might excuse him for applying to Louis XIV, who urged him to go to church, sire. I cannot go to hear a man who says whatever he pleases, and to whom no one has the liberty of replying, for the circumstance of speaking alone, and of speaking without fearing a reply, only gives offense when it is made off in zive, in itself it is not unacceptable, but we must acknowledge that arrogance is doubly repulsive in a man who knows too well that he is not to be replied to, the accent of true authority, on the contrary, is welcome to almost every one. We are prepossessed in favor of men who, in this world of uncertainty and perplexity, express themselves on a grave subject with confidence and command. It is, indeed, what first strikes us in an orator, and what conciliates attention to him, especially when it is seen that he draws all his authority from his message and not from himself, and that he is as modest as he is assured. What was it that astonished the Jewish people in the doctrine of Jesus Christ? Was it that doctrine itself? It was chiefly the authority with which Jesus Christ expressed it, for he taught them, says in Matthew 7, 28, 29, as, one having authority and, not as the scribe's authority, doubtless became Jesus Christ but, it also be mes, the truth authority, is inherent in truth and, those refo, in the name of Jesus Christ, declare to the world that truth which regenerates and saves, have the right, or rather, are under obligation to speak it in the same accent with himself. If the servants are not greater than their master, neither are they in a certain sense less than their master, the truth which they bring to the world, is not less truth in their mouth than in his, it does not become them to speak as the scribes, for they are not seeking by a thousand subtle windings, to introduce their own inventions into the minds of men, they have a sovereign message to deliver, they are to speak as ambassadors of a king 
whom they represent, their person is nothing, their message is the whole, and not for their person, but for their message, do they claim respect, but they would be as culpable not to demand this respect for the divine thought of which they are the depositaries, as they would be foolish and ridiculous to demand it for their own thoughts, St. Paul, accordingly, fears not to enjoin on Titus, and doubtless on all ministers of the gospel, to exhort and reprove with all authority, Titus, 2, 15, an injunction which must seem remarkable, when we remember that it came from him who of all men, perhaps, had most respect for the liberty of the human conscience, who most rigidly refrained from controlling the faith of his disciples, who most carefully avoided identifying his counsel with commands, and who has most strenuously insisted that the obedience of the faithful should be a reasonable or rational obedience, he is not inconsistent with himself. It is a duty of some to examine before believing, it is the duty of others to assert boldly what they believe. This boldness, this dignity, this gravity, in a word this authority, does not in the slightest degree touch liberty, it only warns conscience and gives it the alarm, and preaching interferes with liberty only when it disturbs the soul and overwhelms it with delusions, and when it takes advantage from the noise and tumult it has excited, to force from us an assent which we never would have given it, in an attentive tender, but sedate frame of mind, we are obliged to admit that the accent of authority is somewhat defective in the preaching of our times, and that comparing preachers of the same age with one another, the Catholics appear to have the advantage in the respect which we are considering, beginning with the Catholics we grant that authority, in a peculiar sense, being the mother idea and the fundamental characteristic of the Catholic institution, it is not surprising that it reproduces itself everywhere, and that the minister having not only individual faith in the religion which he preaches, but belonging to a body which interprets, and to say the whole perpetuates revelation, addresses his auditory, in one sense, from a greater height, which the Protestant preacher cannot occupy, it is true that he preaches, and so reasons, discusses, examines as well as the Protestant minute sister, but all these acts which imply similarity of position, are interpenetrated by a sense of sovereignty in matters of faith, which belongs to no other system, the subjects themselves, the form, the tone of the discussion, announce the Catholic priest, and when the priest and the minister maintain the same cause, the one pleads it as a lawyer the other as an attorney general, now, without leaving the reformed church, if we inquire as to the difference in regard to authority, between our times and times more ancient, we find the explanation not in a feebleness of conviction on the part of ministers, but in a circumstance of another nature, and perhaps by looking closely at the matter we shall find that authority appears to have diminished, only because it had been exaggerated, or that the cords, if we may so speak, appear relaxed at present only because they had been drawn too tight, with the authority of conviction and of internal vocation which is the whole, there was unconsciously mingled the authority of position or of external vocation, and perhaps the latter had too great a share in the assurance and loftiness of tone in preaching, there was not then more of true faith and less of real unbelief than there is with us, but unbelief declared itself less, and even less knew itself. Unbelief was not then driven by circumstances to the necessity of declaring or even of examining itself, among those who on this point understood themselves and would no longer be deceived, the greater part, whether from prudence or policy, were silent, those who divulged their infidelity were few in number, and were blamed by those who agreed with them in opinion, in the fiction of law, or to speak more correctly, in the common prejudgment, everyone was a believer, the flocks remained in appearance entire and compact, the church was very much incorporated with the political institution, faith was always and with good reason taken for granted, the clergy were the quiet possessors of a strong position, and of privileges, 
for the defense of which some, I think, had made few sacrifices, but against which, on the other hand, others had made few efforts. I seriously believe that the change which has supervened, and which many deplore, is a divine blessing, and that if unbelief which was formerly unknown is now acknowledged, if opposition which was concealed is now discovered and declared, there has been in this nothing but progress. At first there appears to be an increase of infidelity, a more attentive examination discovers, in what has taken place, only an increase of sincerity and frankness, those who by the aid of carefully maintained vagueness, and carefully, avoided discussions, supposed themselves and were generally admitted to be believers, have been forced to take account of themselves, and to render a count of themselves to others, and on the other hand, those who have continued to believe and profess faith, believe in good earnest and profess to some purpose say and do as we will, there is a sort of disbanding of that compact majority which was called the church, all kinds of causes have concurred to produce this state of things which is every day becoming more manifest and more flagrant, ministers long since might have seen that their work was becoming more and more like that of missionaries, and that though nominally at the head of a church, they have scarcely a nucleus left, and are really called to gather and constitute a church. This state of things is essentially the same with that under which they have long lived, without knowing the fact, their real task was formerly what it now appears to have become, the difference is a constantly, increasing light as to positions and relations, but what should hence result and respect to authority, if we speak of a genuine authority, nothing, or rather a real advantage, conventional authority is gone, we must cast ourselves on the other, that which every interpreter of truth, under the force of truth, may display, it is true that we can rely no longer on the implicit and silent assent of a flock, that is to say, we have one illusion less to remove, but we may always rely on the force of truth and the promises of God, it is true that the sheep no longer come to us, but that we have to go and even to run after the sheep, but did the apostles, who acknowledged that it was the object of their ministry to beseech men to be reconciled to God, 2 Corinthians, v 20, exhort with less authority on that account, Titus, 2, 15, is the pastor lesser pastor when he runs after the sheep, than when he feeds them with his hand in the fold from which they do not think of departing? This pursuit of the wandering sheep, which should always be the essence of our ministry, is more evidently so than ever, and if in this pursuit, the direction, the deviation, the length of which seem to be determined by the sheep themselves, we appear to be dependent on them, if through hills and valleys, brambles and ravines, that is to say, through all the paths in which passion and prejudice, knowledge and ignorance, levity or sophistry, may lead a soul astray from the knowledge of the truth, we are obliged to pant after them and patiently accommodate our course to their disorderly course, if each epoch by renewing the forms of error, constrains us to renew the forms of truth. What is there in this charitable condescension to take away the character of that authority with which preaching should always be marked? What will charity take away anything from authority? Does authority consist and appear in always pertinaciously speaking the same language and maintaining the same formulas? And have the infinite condescensions of the divine charity ever debased? Have they not rather embellished and softened the holy majesty of God which the Bible has revealed to us we must, however, confess that preaching in becoming, 